0: The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'm actually going to talk to you about singing today. We were singing that song just a minute ago, I Owe Everything to Jesus, where it goes... um, I owe everything to Jesus, all I am or ever, ever hope to be. Every need he will supply, and he keeps me satisfied. I owe everything to him. My daughters hated that song. And they'd always add this to the end. I owe, I owe, it's off to church I go. Shame on them. <laughs> but they were like that. You all know, recognize the reference, I hope. Oh, okay, you do. It just wasn't that good, was it? (laughs) All right, so let's talk about singing. How about that? Let's open our Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26. And I have one verse to use for today's message, and this is verse number 30 that comes at the conclusion of the section where Jesus gave his disciples the first Lord's Supper. Now, let me read this verse to you. Uh, Matthew 26, in verse number 30, says, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out... Into the Mount of Olives. That's always the last verse that we read at the end of the Lord's Supper. We close our observance by reading that verse and then we do just what that verse says. We sing a hymn and then all of us go out and we go our separate ways. I've preached many, many messages on the Lord's Supper. Uh, Just before Christmas, I finished up three messages on that topic for more than 12 years. Uh, I've, I've preached sermons over and over again on the four different texts that we find in Scriptures where the Lord's Supper is mentioned. But what I've not done is that I've never preached a message on verse number 30. And so we're going to break new ground this morning, both for you and for me, because I'd like to talk to you about verse number 30. And I noticed as I was preparing the message that. Other preachers have done just what I have always done. We read verse number 30, we just state the text, and then we move on to something else. And there's really hardly any commentary that you find about verse number 30. We have volumes of material on the verses that come before this and afterwards, but commentary on verse number 30 is just noticeably sparse. And so this seems to be the verse that always gets overlooked. I was listening to a preacher just the other day and, or reading a sermon actually that he wrote and uh, he took as his text verses 30 through 35 and he preached on that text without even mentioning verse number 30. So I thought it's time to change that. And so today I want to talk about this hymn that was sung by Jesus and his disciples. For some reason the Lord has impressed upon me that what we need to do is just take a closer look at verse number 30 and i know that when we look at the scriptures more carefully that the lord always has a blessing for us now I'll remind you that this verse comes in this section is about uh, the passover uh, the night began as the observance of passover and there was much that took place during the observance of the passover and that ancient ritual in Israel had many different components to it. So we ought not to think that what we read in Matthew 26 verses 26 through 29 is all that they did on the night of the Passover and of the Lord's Supper. And so to understand what took place, we, we have to read several different passages of Scripture because there isn't one single passage. There's not one single author that gives us the sequence of events of all that took place on that particular night. And so what we must do is we have to go to other places. We go to Mark chapter 14, then we go to Luke chapter 22. We read 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and then we supplement all of that with John Chapters 13 through 17. Now, as you read John, John doesn't mention the supper directly, although he does say many things about what happened after the Passover portion of that meal. In the extended passage of John 13, he tells us about the foot-washing episode. I think all of you remember that, where Jesus taught his disciples about servanthood. So he bent down and he washed the disciples' feet. And that particular part of John 13 is a source of controversy or has been in the past for some people because out of that they've drawn that foot washing is also an ordinance that God has given to the church. And still today in the mountainous areas of Appalachia, you'll find that there are some foot washing Baptists. That they practice foot washing just as they do the Lord's Supper and Baptism. So there was a lot of things that actually happened on this night. There was the Passover meal that took place. There was the foot-washing episode. And then there was the announcement of the betrayal. Jesus said that one of them was going to betray him. Then there was Judas who got up and left before the institution of the supper. Then Christ gave them the supper. Then comes the teachings of John chapter 14. And all of that is concluded by verse number 30 and the singing of a hymn. We've all heard the word hymn. We know, we, we know about hymns. You hear it quite often. If you look in the pew in front of you, you'll find a, a book there that has 700 songs, over 700 songs that are in that book. I remember when Brother Mac Campbell was alive, and he used to sit back there about row number four in front of uh, Stephen Donner, where Hazel is sitting now, that Mac Campbell would ask me, why don't we sing more of the hymns that are in the hymn book? Why do we sing so few of these hymns? Well, actually, the hymn book, there's a reason why we don't, the hymn book is not filled with hymns. There are a lot of songs that are in the hymn book, but there aren't actually a lot of hymns that are in the hymn book. In the later part of the 19th century, in the period that was called revivalism, there were many gospel songs that were written during that time, and those gospel songs have become the staples of our modern worship. One of the main characters of that time was a man by the name of Dwight L. Moody, who was a revival preacher, and he had a sidekick by the name of Iris Sankey, and Iris Sankey was a beautiful singer, he was a very talented author of songs, and so Moody and Sankey teamed up, and Moody used Sankey to set the mood, no pun intended, but Moody used Sankey to set the mood for his revival meetings, and... uh, Uh, Moody wrote these, or Sankey rather, wrote these songs where they made emotional appeals. Now some of the songs that they wrote were very good, many of them were not good enough. And that's because the subject of the songs changed from the exaltation of Christ and the glory of God to the focus... The focus being put on personal experience and personal testimony. And so in other words, the focus was actually turned away from Christ and turned to the sinner, and the songs focused on what the sinner would do rather than what Christ has done. Now unfortunately, the manipulation of songs in order to raise emotions, to make people shed a tear, was to get them to the place that they would be stirred up in order to make a decision. And so the intent of those songs the gospel songs was actually to manipulate people. But unfortunately, manipulations of man's emotions is man's attempt to do the work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration. And so on the basis of that, many of the songs that have been written and how people use those in evangelical churches today, people have been spoon-fed the doctrine of decisional regeneration. Now, understanding that, then what is a hymn? What exactly is a hymn? Is a hymn just a gospel song? Let me read to you from Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom and teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Now you can see in that verse that there is a difference between types of songs. There are hymns and there are spiritual songs. And strictly speaking, the hymns are those songs that are sung from Scripture. Now there is a place for other type of singing, for other spiritual songs, but the hymns are the ones that contain verses of Scripture or paraphrases of Scripture text. Now for example, let's turn to Colossians chapter 3. Uh, and this verse that I just read is in this portion of Scripture. But if you look in Colossians chapter 3, I want to show you an example of an early Christian hymn. This is New Testament singing. We'll talk about Old Testament singing in just a minute. But if you look at Colossians chapter 3, we'll start there in verse number 15, and then read down to verse number 20. Colossians 3:15. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Wives, submit yourselves to, unto your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. Those six verses we've read were translated into an early church hymn. And I think it's interesting to look at what they sang about. They sang about giving of thanks. They sang about doing all things in the name of Jesus. They sang about grace. And isn't it interesting that they also sang about the family? Now, some of you might not like the words of this hymn because they sang about wives obeying their husbands. Sometimes we'll pick up a hymn book and we'll say, well, let's all turn to page number 253. We're going to sing page 253, and I don't know what that is, so you don't have to look it up. But we say, we're going to sing page number 253, and we're going to sing verses 1, 2, and 4. And we leave out verse number 3. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands must have been in verse number 3, evidently. Now, if, if you'll take a look here, just back up a little bit to the book of Philippians. if you're not used to your hymn book, your Bible, uh, back up to Philippians, it's right before Colossians. And I want you to look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. Most of you are familiar with this scripture. This is a song about Jesus. And these verses were also used as the basis of, of an early Christian hymn. Philippians 2, verse 6. Who being in the form of God Every knee should bow of things in heaven and things of earth and things under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now I would say that is a hymn that is far better than most of the hymns that we sing today. That is a very highly doctrinal hymn. It uses scripture and you can't get better than the words of scripture. Sometimes people will inquire before they come and visit Berean Baptist. Sometimes they get an email. Maybe we'll get a call from someone. And they'll ask, what kind of songs do you sing at Berean? Do you sing the old songs of the faith? And usually what they have in mind are those gospel songs that came out of revivalism or the period afterwards. And they aren't really the old hymns of the faith. They aren't really that old, and many of them aren't actually hymns. So what is a real hymn, and which other songs are the best songs that we can sing? Well, actually, they don't have to be old. They must be songs that speak great doctrinal truths. They're songs that will draw our attention to Christ and to exalt Him. They're actually songs that teach us something. Now, what we find in many of the gospel songs that came out of the period of revivalism is they don't actually teach very much at all. Sometimes they're catchy tunes, often they're repetitive, and they're not really hymns. And so going back to this passage in Matthew 26, verse 30, we have to wonder about this. What was this hymn that Jesus and the disciples sang? Now, if you were to ask me, what is the song that you sing at the end of the Lord's Supper... Well, there's no guesswork about it. We know exactly what that song is. For the past 12 years that I've been the pastor, we've always sung amazing grace at the end of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper draws our attention to the grace of God, and I think that's a very good song for us to sing, to think about how that God gave His only Son to become a sacrifice for our sins, that He was nailed to a cross and His blood was poured out. Just to sing about the grace of God in giving us Jesus Christ, that certainly is a good hymn for us to sing at the at the end of the Lord's Supper. So Amazing Grace, that's a great song. And, and I think that perhaps John Newton was nearly inspired by God when he wrote that song. And I might say this also about John Newton, that Newton was a man who believed in the grace of God. He preached and believed and taught the doctrines of grace, just like we teach at Berean. He taught the electing grace of God and the effectual grace of God, the justifying grace of God, the preserving grace of God, and the glorifying grace of God, all of which you find in Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. But despite that, despite the great message that we find in the song Amazing Grace, I can tell you with great assurance that Jesus did not sing Amazing Grace for the Lord's Supper. Now, he was aware that that song was going to be written. Jesus knew every word of that song. There's no doubt about that. But they didn't sing Amazing Grace. But they did choose a hymn that was about him. What they did was to choose a song from the Psalter. Do you know what the Psalter is? That's the book of Psalms. Many of them which were written for the purpose of singing. Well, there's there's songs that we love that come from the Psalms. Uh, the first three verses of Psalm chapter 5 has been made into a song. This is one that I really like. It says, Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my meditation. Hearken unto the voice of my cry, my King and my God. For unto thee will I pray. My voice shalt thou hear in the morning. O Lord, in the morning will I direct my prayer unto thee and will look up. Those verses were set to a a musical tune just a few years ago. A, A very old text that has become a very modern song and a good song at that. We don't sing that song here at Berean. Maybe sometime we'll pick that up and do it because I like it. There is a song that we do sing that came from the Psalms. In fact, we sang it just a few minutes ago. This is from Psalm chapter 19. Now, interestingly, our godly deacons asked that we would remove that song because they don't like it. And uh, I recommend that you pray for them about this. Uh, I said to them, how, how do you expect that I'm ever going to explain this, that we remove a song that actually has scripture in it? So you pray for the deacons if you would. Uh, but you'll also find it interesting, I think, that for, for many years after the Reformation... There were men like Calvin that believed that the only songs that could be sung in the church were the Psalms, that you couldn't choose anything else. You had to sing the scriptures if you were going to sing. Well, there were Baptists that came along a little bit later than that who actually thought, well, there shouldn't be any singing done in the church. And so they refused to sing at all. For many years, those churches were totally silent. There was no singing in the church. And then along came... Pastors like Benjamin Keach, who was one of the architects of the first London Baptist Confession of Faith, this would be uh, in about the middle of the 17th century, and they thought that singing was a good thing. And so Benjamin Keach decided that what he wanted to do was start his congregation singing. And the first place that he started with a song was our text that we read just here. After they took the Lord's Supper, they sang a hymn. And it wasn't long before Benjamin Keach had compiled a songbook of 300 songs that they used in their worship services. The psalms, though, were actually the primary songs that were sung by the church in the beginning. They sang the psalms, and this was because of their Jewish heritage. Now, the Jews often sang psalms. They had psalms that were connected to feasts like Passover and some of the others. And uh, they would sing these psalms, and some of them, as you read them, they're about serving God. Some psalms are about God's power. Some of them are about victory over enemies and so on. There are some of the psalms that were written written during the captivity. These are very sad songs. Um, One of these I have a sermon on, Psalm 137, and I titled that sermon, Songs Sung Blue. If you Neil Diamond fans, that's where I got the title. But listen to this this lament from Israel in Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hanged our harps upon the willows in the midst thereof. For For there they that carried us away captive required of us a song. And they that wasted us required of us mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? There are many topics covered in the Psalms, and and the Jews would use them for specific religious occasions. So that brings us back to our text. Jesus and the disciples sang a hymn. But do we actually know what they sang? Well, we do have a pretty good idea, because at Passover, the observance always included the singing of the Hillel. And there was a particular Hillel for Passover and that's Psalms 113 to 118. Hallel is the root of hallelujah, which means praise Jehovah. So we're going to look at that today. I want you to turn to your Bibles to Psalm 113. And uh, we're going to look at the Psalms today. And you can see that uh, in, as it starts here in Psalm 113, we find here a psalm about deliverance from Egypt. If you look in Psalm 113 and verses 3 and 4... It says, from the rising of the sun unto the going down of the same, the Lord's name is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Now that actually refers to the nation of Egypt and it refers to any nation that would oppose God. And the point here in the singing of this psalm is that God was greater than Egypt. Egypt then was the most powerful nation on the earth at the time of the Exodus. And so they sang about that. And in Psalm 114, it actually begins this way, when Israel went out of Egypt. And so these psalms are called the Egyptian Hillel. And you can see that they're songs that have to do with Passover. The Passover is about deliverance from Egypt. And because of that, Psalms 113 and 114 were sung at the beginning of the Passover observance. And then when the Passover was ended, they would sing the last part of the Hillel. And that would be Psalms 115 to 118. Now it's very likely then that Jesus and the apostles sang those four psalms at the end of the Lord's Supper. And that would have been the customary hymns to sing... And it really makes good sense because what they would want to do is to choose songs that they knew the words, songs that were familiar to them. Don't you hate it when we sing a song that you don't know? I apologize to visitors because there are songs that we sing that you might not know the tune, you might not know the words, and they're not familiar to you, and singing's not much fun if you don't know the songs. And we thank the Lord that... Eric's on top of things back there because another thing that makes singing difficult is when the words get laid on the screen. And so he's up on that and he punches the button at the right time. And so we all thank God because we've got the words that we can read right on the screen. Amen. Now, what I'd like for us to do then today is I want us to look at Psalms 115 to 118 for just a few minutes. And here I want to point out some things for your learning. So if you'll keep your Bible open to these Psalms, we're, we're going to skip around a bit. And I want to show you the different stanzas of this song that Jesus and the disciples sang. So we're going to look at some of the themes in these Psalms. And one of the remarkable things about what Jesus sang is that he sang songs that were about him. And think about this with, with the weight of the suffering of the cross that was on his mind, Jesus sang many of the things that jesus did are just truly mind-boggling to us we think about there they were at the supper they just finished that jesus knew that that supper was all about his death about the suffering that he was going to go through and yet the scripture says that he thanked god here we see that he sang and we wonder how, how can anybody do this how could you think about singing if you know this is going to happen to you And it starts out as a song that's about suffering, but thank God for this, it doesn't end with suffering. There are many stanzas to these psalms, in 115, 18, many things that they sang about. So let's just take a look at some of the things, some of the stanzas that are in this song. First of all, it was a hymn of affliction. Now it wasn't only in his death that Jesus faced affliction. I'll spend just a moment on this point, because in a couple of weeks we're going to look at this more extensively. But throughout his entire life, there were conflicts. All of his life was a life of conflicts. It was filled with rejection. And so in 118, verse number 5, the psalmist wrote, I called upon the Lord in distress. Nearly every day was a day of conflict. Even before he began his public ministry, there was conflict in his life. We've just had the reading of the Christmas story this past Wednesday night, I read it to you last Sunday morning as well, that before Jesus even got started, before, at the time that he was born, there was a plot by Herod to kill him. He wasn't even two years old when there was a manhunt, or maybe we should say there was a child hunt for him, because Herod wanted to kill him. But interestingly, what God did was to preserve Jesus by taking him down into Egypt. And this is just a remarkable thing because there we see that God truly is sovereign over the nations because what he did was to take Israel's ancient nemesis, the nation of Egypt, and cause them to be the means of Jesus' protection. And then he went into his public ministry. Things were no different then. Immediately upon his baptism, he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And Satan afflicted him by every means possible. Then he started preaching and he traveled up and down Israel and even though he helped people and he healed people thousands were helped he eradicated disease nearly and demons from that country and yet he was rejected. But in this hallel that Jesus sang at the end of the Lord's supper he sang about his life. That life was filled with rejection and even it was a life that most of us would have been gladly would have gladly given up. But Jesus sang about it. How do you sing about things like this? How do you sing about rejection from your own family? How do you sing about rejection from your people? How do you sing about all the problems that you're going through? How do you sing when you have to fight for your reputation every day because people have called you an imposter and a liar? But Jesus sang about his life. He sang it because it was a life that he chose. He was a king who actually chose this kind of life to become a servant. He chose to live this way, to go down to the lowest rung in order that people that hated him would be exalted to the highest. And so Jesus went out of that upper room singing a song about his affliction. Well, next we see another stanza. And you wonder, how can he sing this? It was a hymn of execution. He sang a stanza about execution In 116, verse number 3, it says, The sorrows of death compassed me, and the pains of hell got hold upon me. I found trouble and sorrow. Oh, we have many songs that we sing about the death of Christ. The old rugged cross, that's one of our favorites, isn't it? When I survey the wondrous cross, that's a great old hymn, a great song about Christ and his death. Isaac Watts wrote that song. And did you know that Isaac Watts was also committed to the doctrines of grace? In one of his hymns, he wrote, The sovereign will of God alone creates us heirs of grace, born in the image of his Son, a new peculiar race. He also wrote this line, May not the sovereign Lord on high dispense his favors as he will, choose some to life while others die, and yet be just and gracious still? That's some pretty strong theology for songs. Charles Wesley, who wrote many, many songs, said that he would have given up all the songs that he'd ever written if he just could have written that one song, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. There are more modern songs that we sing about the cross. One of my favorites is The Power of the Cross. And that is a powerfully moving anthem, isn't it? We sing about... The Lord's death, but we wonder how could Jesus sing about his own death? Why, why would he be so joyously singing about his death? And we would think how morbid a song it would be for someone to sing about their going to die. But the Bible doesn't say that Jesus was morbid about it. It says that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the shame of the cross. Now there's a particularly interesting verse in Psalm 118 that relates to his death look at verse number 27 it says God is the Lord which has showed us light bind the sacrifice with cords even under the horns of the altar I'm not a farmer or a rancher I've never been one I've never actually had to kill an animal for a meal Well, except I have shot a few rabbits in my time but I don't do that anymore Uh, I prefer Safeway should do the killing for me. But I do know this, that an animal does not go easily to his death. If he suspects something, he's not going to easily lie down and let you take a club to his head or a knife to his throat. No, if you want to kill an animal, you're going to have to tie him down. And that's the idea that we find here in the 27th verse. They had to bind the sacrifice to the horns of the altar. Now, just to explain that to you, the altar was made, it was a rectangular type of box, and it was made with four horns that protruded from each of the corners. And those horns were used as an anchor to tie a rope to hold the animal down. And when we think about that picture of tying that animal down, it makes what is said here in the Psalms very, very interesting to us. Because first of all, the first interesting thing about it, it says there in that verse that God is light. That means that God is truth. God is the one who always does right. He's the one who does justly. And God is the one who said tie him to the horns of the altar. And then the second interesting thing about it is that Jesus was an uncommon sacrifice. I mean not just that he was a man, but also that his demeanor is actually compared to a sheep. He was a lamb that went to the slaughter without a word of protest. He was bound to the altar... That was his cross. He was bound to the altar of the cross, but he went there without protest. There were nails that were driven into his hands and his feet, but those nails weren't driven to hold him to the cross. He could have come down at any time that he wanted to come down. The crowd mocked him and said, If you're the Christ, if you're truly the King of Israel, then come down from that cross. But he would not. He would not come down because that was his appointed place. He was ordained to death. And so he wasn't going to tear those nails out of his hand and come down from the cross. The nails weren't there to hold him. He was there voluntarily. And the angels in heaven were looking down on this scene. And I'm certain of this, that what Jesus had to do was to hold those angels back. Michael would have loved to jump at the chance to come and rescue his Lord. But Jesus said no. I can call legions of angels to deliver me. But he stayed there on the cross. That's because there was no fight in Jesus. There was no resistance in him. Isaiah said, He's like a sheep that before his shears is dumb. He went to that cross without ever opening his mouth. He was a docile sheep. And yet they bound him to the altar anyway. Jesus sang about its execution. He went to the Mount of Olives with this song fresh on his lips, singing about his own death as he met the betrayer. Now thirdly, another stanza that we find here is that it's a hymn of resurrection. The cross and the tomb were not the end of Jesus. So we find another precious stanza in the song. Look at 116, verses 8 and 9. For thou hast delivered my soul from death, mine eyes from tears, and my feet from falling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. Jesus sang about his resurrection. Do you remember when he gave the supper, he told the disciples, I'll not drink this with you again until I drink it anew in my Father's kingdom. Jesus knew the cross wasn't his end. He didn't leave his disciples with feelings of finality. No, he knew that he would rise again. So we find many references to the resurrection in his teachings. In the text of Matthew 26, we'll talk about this verse next week, but in verse number 32, he said, But after I am risen again, I will go before you into Galilee. Well, maybe we have trouble with him singing about his death. That seems a little bit strange to us. But we don't have any trouble with him singing about the resurrection. Oh, the resurrection is actually something for all of us to sing about. To sing about with the greatest of joy. Why should we? Because Jesus said this just before he sang this hymn. It's in John 14, 19. Yet a little while, and the world seeth me no more, but ye see me... Because I live, ye shall live also. He said that and he sang the Hillel and he told them, I'm going to live again and because I'm going to live again, you will live again. And so the resurrection is the hope of our eternal life. Christianity is not Christianity without the resurrection. So if you want to ask me, why do I sing about Jesus? It's because he's the hope of heaven. He's my only hope of heaven. I can't get there without him. Now the Hillel in Psalm 115 to 118 contains some, contains some very many of these sublime thoughts about Christ. You need to read the whole thing at a later time. There are many sublime thoughts that are found here, but there's also something in this that many people do not know about and many people do not want to know about. What most people want is the meek Jesus They want the Jesus who willingly went to the cross. And they want the Jesus who's the baby in the manger, as I spoke about last week. That's the Jesus that they want, and they don't want to hear about this part. But there is another stanza in this song. It was also a hymn of retribution. Now, yes, Jesus' life was one of affliction. Yes, they did reject him. They did beat him. They beat him to the point that his face and his body were unrecognizable. And yes, they did execute him as a common prisoner, a criminal rather. And yes, Jesus did say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. They did all of that to the, him and yet Jesus offered forgiveness. And you by, and I by our sins, we have done that to him. Yet Jesus offers us forgiveness. Forgiveness. And those of us that are saved, we have received that offer, that offer of Christ. And by faith in Him, we have been forgiven. However, most people don't. And Jesus said that they wouldn't. His mercy, His grace, His love was expended at the cross. It was extended. And it was only extended to those who repent of the sin of crucifying Him. But most people don't repent of that. They don't repent and believe in For people who don't believe, there is never forgiveness. And so for them, God doesn't promise forgiveness. He promises retribution. God's love was expended at the cross, and now after his love, for those who have not received that, he extends his wrath. His wrath is waiting in the wings to give rightful justice. Many people don't want to read this part of his song or sing it, 118 verses 10 through 12 all nations compass me about but in the name of the Lord will I destroy them they compass me about yea, they compass me about but in the name of the Lord I will destroy them they compass me about like bees they are quenched as the fire of thorns for in the name of the Lord I will destroy them Three times the psalmist quotes the Savior as saying, I will destroy them. Now it's pretty hard to argue against final retribution, isn't it? Someone has said that when the Lord says something once, you need to listen. When he says it twice, he demands your attention. If he says it three times, you're not getting out alive if you ignore him. And I can promise you this, that as much as people today don't want to sing this stanza of his song the disciples actually loved it they loved these kinds of verses they were kingdom freaks do you remember they're kingdom freaks they want to conquer somebody just anybody it doesn't matter let's just conquer somebody remember peter he tried to protect the lord by cutting off uh, the high priest servant's ear That's his means. Uh, He likes these kinds of songs about retribution. James and John, the sons of thunder, Boanerges. They wanted to call fire down from heaven. Oh, they love these kinds of songs. They want to conquer somebody. But Jesus said, no, I will have my vengeance. So here's a verse about him. Three times he says, I will destroy him destroy them. Revelation 19 says that he's going to return on a white horse with the sword of truth and a vesture that's dipped in blood and it says he'll tread the winepress of the wrath of the almighty God. And I suspect that if we were to put a song on the screen with these kinds of verses about killing people and rivers of blood and about death and hell, most people wouldn't like it. Most people would never even believe it. They wouldn't believe that Jesus would ever sing songs like that. But I can tell you this, that was a top ten hit with the disciples. Well, actually, in the Psalms, we find many imprecatory songs. You know what that means? Imprecatory Psalms are psalms of vengeance on the enemies of God and the enemies of his people. They used to sing about things like that. But music changed, the themes changed, mostly our songs today are syrupy, and there's nothing wrong about singing about love, we love love to sing about love, we like to sing about grace. It's wonderful that we can sing about the grace of God, but we don't have the proper balance of God's word if our singing doesn't actually contain verses about his wrath, And so the old hymn writers, they used to include these kinds of things. They sang about the grace of God, but they also sang about God's retribution, about God's vengeance and his wrath that falls on people that don't believe in him. But churches don't sing about that any longer. We don't have songs, very many songs with verses like that. You can go to churches around here and you won't find it usually. You can go to the biggest church in America with uh, pastors Joel and Victoria Osteen. And you can listen to what they had to say about this and about worship. You know, I thought this was interesting, that after uh, Victoria Osteen redefined worship to their congregation, I don't know if you heard this, but Victoria Osteen stood in front of 50,000 people and said, when you come to worship, it's not about God. You don't come to worship God, you come to worship, it's about you. It, it, it's, worship is about you. And there was one commentator who responded to that with this, it was a quote from a line in Billy Madison, the film Billy Madison. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I've ever heard. At no point in your rambling, incoherent response were you even close to anything that could be considered a rational thought. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. May God have mercy on your soul. And I think that kind of nails down Joel Osteen's preaching in his books. Well, we can sing about love but most people don't know this, that you can't really understand God's love until you put it up next to his hate for sin. Did you know that it takes bounds and bounds of love to overcome God's hatred of sin? And Jesus was the only one that could do that. His sacrifice was the only thing that was enough to turn away the wrath of God. So maybe we need some more songs about retribution. Jesus didn't have any problems singing about it. Now, fifthly, there's another stanza, and this this is a stanza or a hymn of restoration. Jesus included a stanza of restoration. If you read the bulletin articles each week, you'll know that often I mention Robert Hawker. I like to uh, read Hawker's commentary. He He lived in the 19th century, and... He has commentary on the Psalms, and it seems that he could find Jesus in almost every Psalm. There are many other commentators that don't like that, and so they don't often quote from a hawker. But here's one of these places where if you doubt that the Psalms are about Christ, then you need to study it a little bit harder because you can actually see the Messiah in these verses. In 118, verses 22 and 23, it says, "...the stone which the builders refused." Is become the headstone of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Now, first, you have to remember that when the psalmist wrote this at his time, he was writing for the encouragement of Israel. So he was writing about his time, but also looking forward to the time of Christ. And so looking at that in the original context, the rejected stone here is Israel. Israel was the nation that was outcast. They were oppressed. They've they've always been oppressed. Even to the present day, Israel is oppressed. In the psalmist's time and before, it was the Egyptians, and then came along the Assyrians, and then there were the Babylonians, then came the Medes and the Persians, then came the Greeks and the Romans. In more modern times, it's been Germany and Russia, now Palestinians and Arabs. Did you know that in the scriptures, there's an entire section of Ezekiel that deals with Russia as Israel's enemy? So in the past, and now in the present, and the Bible says in the future, there is oppression to come. And the... Time in the future is actually the worst because this is going to be during the tribulation when the Antichrist will pull out all stops in his efforts to exterminate Israel, to wipe them from the face of the earth. And he would succeed in that if God had not preserved, will not preserve a remnant. So verse number 22 in, in Psalm 118 has an application for Israel. But we also know that the verse has messianic implications. We studied that when we looked at Matthew chapter 21. There, it says in Matthew 21, Jesus saith unto them, Did you never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected, the same as become the head of the corner? This is the Lord's doing and is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say unto you, The kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken. But on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder." Now there, when you get to the forty fourth verse, Jesus switches the application of the text. Now he says it's about him, that he's the stone that's been set aside by the builders. He's the rejected stone, the one that's disallowed. And then if you read verse forty five, which we don't have here, becomes afterwards, it tells us there that the chief priests and the scribes perceived that they were speaking of them, that Jesus was talking about them. And they were the ones that rejected him, and true to their form they killed him. And so the stone was counted worthless when actually the stone, Jesus Christ, was the cornerstone of a glorious kingdom. Now if you take the position, as some do, that the stone is a capstone or others take the position that the stone is a cornerstone, it really doesn't make any difference. Either way, Jesus is the foundation or the pinnacle of a glorious kingdom. So Jesus sang this hymn about him. He's the stone-rejected but restored to its rightful place. All of those are great stanzas. But we have one last stanza, and that is it's also a hymn of recognition. This is the recognition. He sings about this, the recognition that he's the true king of Israel, that he is the one who's the rightful heir to the throne of David. Verse 26 of 118, Blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord, we have blessed you out of the house of the Lord. And I hope you recognize that's another scripture that was quoted by Jesus. This one is highly significant because he quoted it in Matthew 23:39. 39. For I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth till ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Do you remember how they praised him as he entered into Jerusalem? He came at the beginning of the Passion Week. The same week he's going to be crucified. On Sunday he came into the city riding on a donkey. And the people threw palm branches in the way. And they cried out, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. The people called him the Son of David. That's a messianic term. They said we recognize who he is. They hailed him as the king and they quoted the psalm. And yet four days later... There he was hanging on a cross with a mocking sign over the cross that said this is the King of the Jews. Jesus knew all about that. And so in Matthew twenty three thirty nine, he told the Jewish leaders I'm coming back. And when I come back, all of Israel will say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. And so in this Hillel. In this hymn, before going to the Mount of Olives, before going to the betrayal, before going to the cross, he sang of his kingdom. Death was not the end. There was this joyous refrain that one day all will recognize him as the king of all nations. Do you know that heaven is going to sing that song? Heaven will sing this song. If you want to read hymns that are in the Bible, then you, you have to read this one. Let's turn to Revelation chapter 5, and we'll end here. Revelation chapter 5. Jesus and the disciples sang, and they sang about the cross, how it would be the means of redemption, and the redemption of a countless multitude, actually. So let me read this, and if you ever think that you don't like to sing new songs, then read what it says here. Revelation chapter 5, verse number 9. And they sung a new song saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for Thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by Thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. And I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the beasts and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand, and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him. That liveth forever and ever. That is recognition of who Jesus is. Now one day Jesus is going to return and we're going to sing a new song. There will be a new song on our lips and it's not going to be the songs that we sing now. Not songs about affliction. Not songs of suffering. Not songs about executions. Rather we're going to sing songs of triumph will sing songs of glorious praise, a hallel, to the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out in the Mount of Olives. It was a great song that they sang. And may we end it with this, Psalm 34, 3, also in song. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for what we read in Scripture today. What a beautiful song that Jesus sang. It starts out with much difficulty, starts out with hatred for Him, a life of affliction, moves on through a terrible execution, and then begins to lift us up as we think about the resurrection of Christ. And then we also understand that there are those ominous tones, those verses that need to be sung about your wrath, but we also know that your wrath is appeased by the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Lord, we look forward to the day when you do return. Uh, We think about the, the glorious kingdom that you'll bring to this earth and, Lord, how we long for that kingdom to come when all troubles are over, when all sins that we commit have been done away with, when we are perfectly restored into the image of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, and we pray for that day to come. Bless your people today. Speak to our hearts. Draw us close to you in this last Sunday of the year. May we exalt your name forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronit Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.